50 movies I can recommend very often, but I watched one, and you probably can't read that. It, this movie was called I'd Climb the Highest Mountain, and it's an old movie. Um, new movies don't have pastors in them that are good. You, you may have noticed that. Uh, this, was in the 19, this movie came out in 1950. Anybody seen this movie? Raise your hand if you have seen this movie. Yes, I see that hand. One person. Yeah, a couple of you. Yeah, yeah. Um, 1950. So the pastor's a good guy. So that's cool. You know, I kind of like movies where the pastor's a good guy, not some creepy weirdo, you know, who uh, does weird things. And um, he, he gets the pretty girl in the movie. So that's cool too, you know. It's a neat movie. Um, here's how it, here's how it kind of goes. And if you get a chance to get it, I would watch it. It's it's a rare movie recommendation. And that's probably not why you came to church, but. It's a, no extra charge today. The, the movie is really neat. Um, it's about the first uh, years of ministry of a couple. And they get married, and they're, you know, I was a newlyweds, and she's really uninitiated in country life and uninitiated in ministry. And, uh, and they go to this little country parish. It's, uh, it's called the Red Wine Parish. It's, um, a, it's a, I think, a Methodist church, and circuit, he's a circuit rider, uh, uh, and so he does the circuit, you know, two or three four churches that he serves, and, and they, follow the first, uh, they follow the first chunk of ministry of this couple. While they do ministry, they, they, uh, they, they have some cantankerous members um, that, are, that they have to use creative ways to get along with them. I'm not going to out you this morning, so relax. Um, but uh, they got some cantankerous members, so the pastor kind of like creatively works around them and works with them. They got you know kids that want to elope. They have the town atheist who uh, hates God and the things of God and kind of gets in the pastor's face. And he and his wife take their horse and buggy and go calling. There's a young socialite that comes and flirts with a pastor, and the pastor's wife creatively runs her off, which is a fun part of the movie. Um, she's, she's got teeth in that part and, um, and, uh, and that's kind of cool. Uh, there's some tragic things that happen in the movie. One of, one thing that happens is that they lose their first child stillborn and, and then they come to the end of the movie and they spent their first three years of ministry in this place and they're saying goodbye because their church has moved them to another parish and they're up in the, in the, uh, they're up in the uh, cemetery and there's a little mound of earth where they're uh, saying goodbye to where they, where they buried their, their little child. And then they come back uh, down the hill, and all the church is gathered with them there. And uh, there's a tearful parting. Uh, in, in case you're wondering, I'm not announcing my resignation today. I'm, I'm just telling a story. <laughs> I'm just telling a story. Um, there's a tearful parting, and... Uh, and you can kind of see in the, in the parting there the reality of ministry, you know, kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly, the people that have come to believe, the people that are kind of on their way to maybe believe someday, and the relationships that they had. It's a very beautiful movie. And then the couple drives off down the road while the music comes up and they wave goodbye. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful movie. And I loved it. Of course, I'm a pastor, so I like movies like that. What's interesting is that the, the, the movie is written uh, based on a book by a woman who was a pastor's wife. Her name was uh, Cora Norris. She's from Georgia. She was a pastor's wife in, 
and she wrote a book. The book that the movie was based off is called uh, The Circuit Rider's Wife. And they say it was loosely autobiographical. They say that she said that it was loosely autobiographical. It was interesting because loose would be the term because the way her life was, was she married this young man who was a circuit-riding Methodist pastor, and she was not a girl. Uh, She wasn't, she called herself, she wasn't one of the prayer meeting virgins. She was kind of a worldly girl, and the, but the pastor picked her, and she was initiated now into this ministry, and she had to learn to be a pastor's wife. But her husband, in real life, uh, Cora Norris's husband, eventually deserted her, abandoned the church and their family, and brought great shame and reproach on them. And then later on in life, he came back trying to pick up the pieces of his life, but it was never like the movie. And so that kind of like is one of those Paul Harvey, the rest of the story stories, isn't it? So a lady then writes, sits down after her husband has died, and she writes the story of what ministry was supposed to have looked like. The beautiful story, the beautiful movie of what it should have been like. I don't know where you find yourself in that story, and obviously you know I can see myself in this story. Maybe you can see yourself in this story. But when I approach our text, which is in Matthew 12 this week, here's what's going on. Jesus is saying, here here is the opportunity of a lifetime. Here I am, and if you will allow me to take the pen, you won't believe how beautiful the story will be that I I'm going to write with your life. He said it then. He's saying it to you this morning. Jesus is kind of like, can I have the pen? You won't believe what a good storyteller I am. You won't believe how beautiful the movie of your life will be. In the end, the music will come up and you will have tears on your face. Jesus is willing to write the story of your life. He's willing to film the movie of your life. Or... If you harden yourself and kind of go your own way, then all the guarantees are off. And in the end, it will not, it will not end well. And that is really what he's saying here. I think today it might be good for us as a church to just kind of look at a sweeping kind of panorama of this chunk of Matthew that we're in so that we really, we really get the idea. I'll tell you something, and I mentioned this before, I'll tell you something that I've learned is that growing up, for some reason, I kind of missed, I, I, miss, I had a misunderstanding that harmed my understanding of the Bible. And, and that was that I, I would often think, if I want to study the Bible deeply, I just need to take a little piece of it, and I need to just concentrate on that little piece of the Bible there, and I need to get out of it all the cool things I can find in it, even if I have to, even if they're kind of like, like warm devotional thoughts that the words reminded me of, or, and, and that's a bad idea, it's much better to kind of get the whole sweep of the entire Bible in your mind and then know where the book that you're looking at fits in the whole sweep of the Bible. It's kind of better to read the Bible fast and get that. That's why you hear me use this term flyover all the time. 
It's just going to be, it's like if, you know, and this is probably going to be a bad illustration for some of you, but like if you were going to golf a golf course and you'd never golfed this golf course before and you didn't have that little scorecard because like you got in and you were like golfing in the morning before the clubhouse opened and you, you know, you're teeing up at the ball and you just look down in the fairway and you're not sure, does this fairway bend left or does it go right? You know, what side of the fairway, where's the, is there going to be water around the corner? I don't, I don't even know. I'm going to hit the ball out there. Well, if you're a good golfer, you wouldn't want to do that. You want to know where to place that ball so that you're going to be able to miss the sand trap or the water or if it bends right or left. And that's really true in the narrative of the Bible. And that is, bat, you know, fly over the thing. Get a real good scope on it. Then it'll look like, oh, okay, now I, the Bible lands with great force on your life. Like today, when you do that, it's just like people will often, you know, tell me, the message was so helpful to me. It's like you were talking to me. I'm like, well, that's not me. That's just because when you spend, you know, the week studying the Bible, and then you just say, hey, look, look what I saw. People are like, whoa, that's so helpful. Because, I mean, it's God's Word, you know. So that's the way it is with Matthew 12. i got to get cruising here. Okay, a lot of, lot of ground to cover. And I kept you until into the afternoon last week. And we don't want to have bad habits now, do we? Yeah. Um, so Matthew, Matthew 12, uh, verses 33 through 50 is kind of what we're going to cover tonight, today, even though, even though we, will, we will, what we're going to do here in, in Matthew 12, 33 through 50, is we're going to cover the, the, there are four sections here, four sections of stuff that Jesus says after they've said, you're, after they call him a devil. So the Pharisees, you know, remember this part, Pharisees called Jesus a devil, essentially, and then he has four little chunks of things he says after that. At one point, they break into the dialogue and they ask him for a sign. But, and they just seem unrelated, these four chunks, but they aren't. When we see how they're related, the truth of it kind of like gets under our skin. It, the truth of it starts to dawn on us. But let, let's go over uh, Matthew, Matthew 12. Now, from Matthew 1 through 11, you really have the presentation of who Jesus is. Jesus is the God of the Bible. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the virgin-born Son of God. And this is the presentation of Jesus and all the things leading up to that and all the proofs in chapters 1 through 11. As the narrative goes, you have the toggling back and forth in Matthew of narrative, which is like describing what's going on, and, and then teaching chunks where, where Matthew shows what Jesus taught. And it's kind of a neat arrangement. It's very neat arrangement. Of course, the Bible, so it shouldn't surprise us. It's neat. But it's a very neat, interesting arrangement. As you look at Matthew, you go, oh, I, I get this. Jesus is being presented to the people for who he really is. And you get to see what he did and hear what he taught. See what he did and hear what he taught. But something sinister and something ugly and something frightening and something chilly, something cold happens when you get to this passage here you have this gorgeous, this beautiful, lovely picture of Jesus as being presented. How can you deny it? And then you've got these people who reject him and call him a devil. And, it, and, you, and you start to see kind of the gathering, dark, gathering storm cloud of rejection that's forming over Jesus. And you're almost like, I can't believe this is happening. The people are not really going to do what I think they're going to do here. They're not really going to reject Jesus, are they? They're really not going to do that. They're not going to listen to the Pharisees, are they? They're not, but they are. They are. It's chilling. It's sad. It's horrible. It's a scandal. And that's what's happening right here. 
And when they do this, it's almost like, I, you know, perhaps it's when they kill Jesus that they, they actually cut him off. But maybe it's before, and we'll talk more about this. But there's something going on. It's either pointing at what's going to happen or it's happening right here. There is this covenantal national rejection of Jesus that Matthew is talking about. It certainly had happened by the time Matthew wrote about it. This is what's going on. And then in chapter 13, you see there's a shift that's going on. And now there's a clear, and you see it right at the end of chapter 12, going into chapter 13, it's really clear that Jesus, which he said all along, but he's making it even more clear now, is that the, the kingdom is going to include the Gentiles. And the Jews were supposed to have caught on to that and helped that happen ahead of time, but they weren't getting it. And so, you know, whenever you say that the kingdom is going to the Gentiles, that should make us, that should make us break out in joy, because like most of us are Gentiles, so like, thank God. And, and so the kingdom is going, and then there's the kingdom parables, which is going to be a little series within the Matthew series that we're going to get into that is super interesting. Super interesting. The kingdom parables, the kingdom stories. Jesus says, this is what the kingdom's like. And what he's going to do is he's going to, he's going to hint broadly toward the church age and the age of the Gentiles. But before that, here's what's going on in Matthew 12. Now, Jesus has been presented, as I said, in chapters 1 through 11, and he's about to be rejected in chapter 12 and following. Jesus calls the people away from the heavy yoke of the Pharisees. You know, remember chapter 11, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you. Don't take the yoke of these Pharisees. They're adding to the law. This is bad. They're going to take you down. They're going to drown you. But, but I want to give you my... So he calls the people away from the heavy yoke of the Pharisees. The Pharisees then attack him um, for allowing his period, which is supposed to say, Disciples to eat grain on the Sabbath. Somebody watched too many movies this week and should have worked harder on the PowerPoint. So eating, <laughs> the disciples were eating grain on the Sabbath, and the, and the Pharisees were laying for this kind of stuff. Like, ah, caught you. You broke one of our rules. You're not religious like we are. Pharisees attack him. That's in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Remember that, right? Eating grain on the Sabbath. And then the Pharisees try to trap him. This is a sting operation. They're like, well, I know, we're going to get him. We're going to get him to heal because he's always healing. Everywhere he goes, he's healing. And you know how people hang around the synagogue. Remember the guy with a withered hand hanging around? We'll just park it right there. And we'll get witnesses there. And the guy with a withered hand, when you get there on the Sabbath by the synagogue, you know what Jesus is going to do because he's always healing people. He's going to heal them. And then we got him. He will heal on the Sabbath. And so then the Bible says at that point, they plotted to destroy him. <laughs> it's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's, it's not right to heal on the Sabbath, but it's okay to plot to kill God. Isn't that amazing? It's like these guys were clueless, weren't they? And so, so then you have Matthew that includes an Old Testament prophecy to explain why Jesus doesn't want them to make the military, make him a military and political deliverer. Pastor Pine preached on that passage, right? Matthew comes in and he says, look at this Old Testament Isaiah passage about who Jesus is. Did you ever wonder why Jesus would do these remarkable things? And like, don't tell anybody. Why would he do that? Did you ever wonder about that? You're reading the Bible. Jesus is like, heal this guy. And the guy's going crazy. He's jumping up and down. And he goes, now listen, this is just between us. Don't go tell anybody about that. Do you ever think like, well, is there some kind of a, kind of a backward marketing ploy? There were Jesus who would say, don't tell anybody. No one who's going to tell everybody. Now, I think it's really clear when the editorial comment from Matthew chapter 12 and verse 16, and he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of Isaiah the prophet. And then the Isaiah passage that Pastor Pine preached on was basic, the suffering servant 
passage, or, or one of them. See that? So in other words, the purpose of Jesus telling people, don't make me known, is don't, let's, get, let's not get this political machine rolling where they're going to make me the military deliver. I will do that, but not yet. First, I will suffer. First, I will die. And that's kind of the hint that's in there. That's what's next. So you see what we're doing here? We're just going through chapter 12 so that you're getting the flyover of chapter 12 so you know where you're supposed to lay up and where you're supposed to carry water, okay? So Jesus delivers an oppressed man, and they say his power comes from the devil. This is like their not finest hour, right? All Jesus has done here is beautiful stuff. You know, he cares about people that are hungry, lets them eat, you know, even though they got rules against it, go ahead and eat. And, and, and he delivers demon-possessed people, and he heals people, and he forgives people, and the whole time they're just grumbling in the background. Now, here's some, just a theory I have about Pharisees. I think at first, maybe, their motives were maybe pure, like they were afraid. You know, if you lived among Sadducees, you wouldn't like it. They're like, they don't believe anything. They don't believe in a resurrection. That's wrong. The whole country's going down the tubes. The Pharisees are going to compromise with the Romans and the Hellenists, and this whole modern thing is going to come sweeping in. It's going to ruin our whole nation. We can't have this. So the bunch of little Archie Bunkers, they're like digging in, going, no, this can't be. And, and so at first maybe they're afraid for their kids, and they're really kind of high in principle. But after a while, it's clearly not that. It's not that they're afraid. It's not that they're trying to keep their you know, nation from compromising into an anti a supernatural religion, it's just that they don't want to lose their little petty jobs. They don't want to lose their little grip. They're willful. They're dug in. It doesn't matter now how many signs they get. It doesn't matter what Jesus does. It doesn't matter what Jesus says. It doesn't matter who Jesus heals. They are going to reject Him. And that's what's going on here. He delivers an oppressed man, and they say His power comes from the devil. This is not a good thing. In response then to this, you get these four sections that Jesus is responding to this. I want you to see this, and I've taken all this time to set it up, even if we, we're going to spill over into weeks coming. I want you to see this because it lands with force, kind of lands on your chest like, oh, wow, then what Jesus says, see, it, it seems like four little unrelated, like, like Matthew just cherry-picking the you know, teaching of Jesus. He goes, oh, he says this, and then he said this. You know, he said this about your heart is bad and out of the good treasure of your heart. And then he said the thing about, you know, oh, they asked for a sign. And then he responded to, why did you ask for a sign? And then he told that little cute, you know, kind of homespun story about more demons coming in after you cleaned your house. And then, then there was the incident where his mother and his brothers kind of came around and he said, who are my mother and brothers? They seem like unrelated. For those four sections, do they seem unrelated at first? The right answer is yes, you know. You know, let me enlighten you then, okay? Yes, you know, go, yes, pastor, please enlighten me. It's like, I'm about to do that, yeah. So, in other words, they seem kind of unrelated. But if you ask the question, how are they alike? And uh, then you begin to see, oh, here's what's happening. Every one of these four sections is a very clear-eyed, square-jawed, courageous, direct statement of Jesus right into the heart of people who, have, who should have been the ones who received Him but would not receive Him. Stay with me here. This will have great force on your heart if you listen uh, to this. So Jesus, so you have, this is what you have then. So you have, now Matthew includes these four teachings, the four sections we're talking about, 33 through 37, he's, you're judged by your words. And it gets to the end, it says, by your words you will be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. There's this section, you know, where he, and in this section, Jesus is going to say to them, uh, are you a good tree or are you a bad tree? 
A good tree bears fruit, bad trees are going to get cut down and burned and so forth. And then he says to them, you are a, you are a nest of snakes. Did you kind of admire that? It's like, did he really say that? Yeah, they looked at him in the face and said, you nest of snakes. He did not, you know, Jesus didn't go, you guys might be a little off, let me help correct this. He goes, you are a bunch of vipers, what you are. It's like, that's kind of manly, isn't it? Um, I, I liked it. And then, there, then there's a section where they're asking for more signs. Like, are you serious with me right now? What did Jesus give? Miracles and healings and all kinds of stuff going on. Thousands of people. They, he restored the sight to people. He delivered people from demons. He raised the dead. That's a big deal. He raised the dead. Converted harlots. All this kind of stuff. And they're like, hmm. Could I have a sign? Like, we have a sign. You don't tell me you need a sign. You rebels. You're just showing that you... It's like the kid who you say to him, nothing personal if you're a kid and your mom asks you this. It's just what popped in my mind. And your mom says, sweetie, wash the dishes. And then you say, how did you want me to do that? Where's the soap? Did you want me to put them in the dishwasher or wash them by hand? You're like, don't fool with me. You know what I want you to do. You just go and do it. And we all do that. Not just kids washing dishes and thing out of the trash. We all do that. Jesus says, let's go do that. And we're like, how did you want me to do that? Who is my neighbor? You know, stuff like that. And show me another sign. Show you a sign, you rebel. Don't you dare ask me for another. That's what it's going to say. And then there's in chapter uh, 12, verses 43 through 45, there's this kind of chilling story about the person that cleans out their house, gets rid of this demon, and then they clean out their house, and then more demons come back in. And he goes, that's what your generation is like. Hmm, what's that? That's mysterious, interesting. Jesus was one of those provocative storytellers that always had, I think, a glint in his eye. He's telling a story, and they're like, what, what? Did he, what, did he, did he just beat me up? We're like, did he just, he did. He just, he just beat me. He just took us out on that little story right there. You know, they're kind of walking home going, oh, wow, that was, he's saying that we're full of demons. Yeah, yeah. you guys are smart. You're catching on. You know, what was your first clue when he called you a nest of snakes or when he said you're a house full of demons? You know, but he was subtle, of course. And then there is this incident with his mother and brothers, which just seems like a kind of parenthetical, but it's not because it's really pointed. This is in chapter 12, verses 46, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. And one said to him, look, your mother and brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. He said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Jesus knew who his mother and who his brothers were. And he had brothers, by the way. Yeah, says so. And, and he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Can you see how that's related to the rest of this? Does it make sense? He's saying, you say you're Jews. You say we're tight. You say we're related. Listen, if you reject me, I don't care if you're my mother, we're not related. I don't care if you're my brother. You reject me, you're not, my, you're not related to me. That's what he's saying. It's all about... Will you receive Jesus or will you reject Jesus? all about that. It's about receiving Christ. Are they going to receive him or are they not going to receive him? 
So I'll make four observations and four applications in, in four, four minutes. Okay. So, so we may, it may be one of those cliffhangers where you're like, oh, pastor, I wanted you to tell me more, but we had to go home. So it may happen like that. And all week long, your heart will just beat fast because you'll be so hungry for this truth. Uh, so the hearts, verses 33 through 37, your hearts are bad. Let's, let's read 33 through 37 here. This is again after this statement of this unpardonable wickedness against Jesus by rejecting him and calling what he did the work of the devil, rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, either make the tree and its fruit good, or else make the tree and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? Of course you said that I was from a demon, because you're evil. That's what, you know, it's important that people know this. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. You said what you said because your heart isn't good, your heart is bad. You're not good tree, you're bad tree. You're not good fruit, you're bad fruit. You're not harmless, you're a brood of vipers. You're bad. This is like Jesus is telling them straight. And a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. In other words, you would have said the right thing about me. But an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things like you just did. He's saying, you just said that what I did came from the devil. That was an evil thing that came out of your heart. It shows your heart was evil. Do you see what this section is about? I say to you, for every idle word that a man may speak. This idol is important. It's not just like casual barbershop talk. He's saying words that don't have substance behind them is the idea here. In other words, these Pharisees were not talking dirty. These Pharisees were not telling dirty jokes. These Pharisees weren't necessarily talking covetous talk. They weren't necessarily talking angry talk. They were talking empty religious talk that didn't have anything behind it. This is what they're getting called out for. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, that, But I say to you, for every idle word that men shall speak, and he's specifically saying words that have nothing behind them. So you're full of God talk that really doesn't mean anything, and you're going to answer to God for that. You're going to be judged for that. They will give an account on the day of judgment, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What you just said is going to come back to haunt you. It's going to come and bite you. That's what he was saying to them. I think he was saying it to them, and I think he was also in a mercy. With, you know, they, must, they might have been beyond the point of no return. But I think there were others that were around that were making up their minds, and I think he's warning them indirectly. And that's where we come in, too, because we're reading these words, and the Spirit has preserved them for us. Matthew has written them down for us. So what, do you, what are you going to do with Christ? You say, I'm going to receive Him. And my question is, are you going to receive Him and keep receiving Him and keep receiving Him and keep receiving Him? I'll get into that a little bit. So you might think, well, Jesus is saying... You're going to be known by your words. Out of the same, in the same breath, he calls them snakes. That's interesting, isn't it? You snakes, you're going to be known by your words. It wasn't wrong for him to call them snakes. It was just good poetry. That's what they were. They were dangerous to people. And in the Middle East, you have these little vipers that kill you. They're venomous or poisonous. That's what you are. You're religious and you're poisonous. You know? So it was an accurate and poetic and creative way that Jesus spoke. It was okay. Nothing wrong with that. He spoke from his heart. His heart was pure and right and good, and he was telling it the way it was. You don't get judged for that. That's right. This is the way it is. It's when you have this oily talk that sounds all slippery and religious, but you really don't mean it. That's what he's gonna. That's what's gonna get you in the end. That's what you're gonna get judged for in the end. That's what he's saying. Now you understand. Dirty words are wrong, and off-color jokes are bad, and and just ch- endless chatter about empty secular things is, is shows that you have a, probably an empty heart. 
and greedy talk is wrong and hurtful talk is wrong and angry talk is wrong and dishonest talk is wrong. And the Bible in other places condemns all of that, but primarily here it's talking about empty religious talk that's not backed up by a life of fidelity to Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying that the Pharisees are going to face the judgment of God for that vain talk. Now, then the next section, verses 38 through 42, which we obviously don't have time for, He's going to say, you're stubborn and willful and you will not submit, even though you've been given the signs, you're asking for more. And then verses 43 through 45, he's saying, you're empty and you're spiritually vulnerable, you're not full, you're full of more demons than when I first came and started you know, cleaning up, and we'll, we'll get into that later too. And then he said in verses 46 through 50, when he's talking about the mother and brothers thing, you don't have a relationship with God, even though you're Jews, you don't have the relationship. that You want to brag that we're tight, but we're not tight, you don't know God, that's what he's saying. And so it's in this context of national covenantal rejection that's forming like a dark cloud over the nation that you get to chapter 13 and the principles of the kingdom. Let me give you some applications. And we'll get into this more even next week, but I think it'll be enough as we, as we look at this four applications. You've given these kind of four observations through these four different chunks from chapter 12, verse 33 to the end of the chapter. I hope I've made that clear. Along with this four applications, one big one and and three that we'll kind of set aside a little bit, and that is there's a sense in which there's obviously a one-time decision for Christ, right? You get saved how many times? One time. You're really saved, you get saved once. Every once in a while we say, that's, when I, that's the second time I got saved. Well, you know, you know it's like baptism. You, there's, only one, there's only one time you get really baptized, biblically and scripturally. Even more so, there's only one time you really get saved. So I've received Christ one time for salvation. It's a one-time deal. And, you know, but it's a little, is it, is it fair to say, it's a little bit like renewing the marriage vows. When you renew the marriage vows, they're really not vows. They're reminders of the original vow. And it's, there's something to be said for that. I mean, I like to lure my wife into sweet talk every once in a while and have her repeat the wonderful things that she promised me all those years ago just so that she doesn't forget. And it makes my heart beat fast and my palms sweat and I'm willing to buy flowers and candy and meals out and that kind of thing. I'm still vulnerable to that kind of thing. Are you? Amen. Good. Good to hear it. I'm still there. As Valentine's last week, you did notice that. You remembered Valentine's, I'm sure. So you, re- in a way, you re- you receive that wife once, but then you receive her over and over and over again. And there's a one time I received Jesus, and I receive Him over and over and over again. I so sad. I can only say yes to Jesus once. I want to keep saying yes every time He tells me anything to do. I don't want to have the hard, filthy heart of a Pharisee that says, I'm so willful and dug in on my thing, and I don't need you. i got my own religion. i got my own religion. I'm good. I want to be the humble, broken, daily. Jesus, whatever you have to say, I receive you again and again and again, a dozen times a day and a hundred times a week and a thousand times a year. Yes, I receive you. I receive you. I receive you. I receive you. Guy in my church, not this one, who I loved and, and like, suddenly decides he likes the neighbor lady better than he likes his wife. And the neighbor lady, who claimed to be a Christian, and he now began to have an adulterous affair, so the affair, sorry for the casual word for a horrible thing. He's going to leave his wife now, and so I said, will you please meet with me and can we talk? And we go to Bob Evans. And I sit down with him and I tell him, I love you, and he's been my friend. And it's like, please, you're not going to leave your wife. 
please, your kids and your testimony, and this woman's a loss, and her husband, and he's just going to make a mess of things you've, you've done wrong. Confess it, make it right. You know, please don't do this terrible thing. He's like determined. You can tell, well, you know, you don't understand what I've been through, and, you know, he's determined. I remember sitting there at Bob Evans and saying to him, are you, are you a Christian? And he's like, yes, sir. So we kind of went over the gospel again, and he's, yes, I believe all of that. I said to him, why don't we just, why don't we just back up here, and why don't we pretend you're not a Christian today, you and me? And why don't we pretend I'm presenting Christ to you today to receive him as your Savior and that you will repent of your sins and you will receive Christ and you will follow him. Will you receive him today, Ken? That was his name. Ken, will you receive him today? Will you receive Jesus today? See, that's what I'm saying. There's one salvation and whether he was saved or not, God only knows. But this is true and it's true for you and me today and that is you will have a chance to receive Jesus today and tomorrow and the next day, a hundred chances to receive him once as your Savior, but thousands of times as the treasure of your heart, and as your Lord, and as your Master, and as your King. So will you receive Him? And your, your words are going to words are going to expose. When your heart gets hard, it'll show up in a way you talk. Like it says there in the text for today. I remember one morning I woke up with, is the one thing to be in the Word of God all the time, because then what happens is you will have scriptures pop into your mind, right? You know what I'm talking about? Hang around church a lot, sing a lot of great stuff, go to Awana and Sunday school and youth groups and all that. Things pop. Did, did you guys know that there were four young men that got saved on our winter retreat yesterday? Am I the first one to tell you that? Somebody tell you that before? I was a little late for church this morning, so four young men. Go to church, go to camp, get the Word of God in you, because then when you most need it and on your the dark side of the moon... Boom, there was something in your mind will come. You're, looking, you're thinking about looking at pornography. And then you'll think this. This has happened to me. You, you think about looking at something bad and having a lustful thought. This has happened to me. And, 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 you, and, you, and the, this is the passage that comes to your mind. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, that brings forth good things. But an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil things. And I go, oh God. I woke up one morning. And I remember just first waking thought that came to my mind. At the time, I could not have told you exactly where it was, knowing it was in the Gospels, but just my mind was like, a good man, isn't this beautiful? A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And I just thought, God, help me be a kind of a guy that has a treasure of good things in my heart. And every time I open my mouth or every time I'm with somebody, there's just something good comes out. A good treasure that brings forth good things and has good fruit and can face God in judgment someday and know that my heart is good because God made it good. What an evil man or woman. The evil church that brings forth, oh, that's, you don't want to go on that side. You don't want to be there. I woke up with that desire. Lord, I want my heart to be a treasure of good things. I don't want to be a, a, a bad tree that's cut down and burned in the fire. I don't want to be a nest of snakes, but a child of God. I want to fully and eagerly and joyfully receive you and receive you and receive you and receive you. 
And so my question to you today would be, will you receive Jesus as your treasure and Savior and Lord over and over again this week? Because if you will, you're in for a lot of fun. Uh, the guy I heard years ago, his name was is Bob Laurent. Anybody know Bob Laurent? Probably. Yeah? Anybody else? Uh, great guy. I met him years ago, and I remember just listening to him thinking, wow, that guy is so gifted. Speaker. I remember Lois and I, we went to a banquet. I remember driving home as a young, young guy that night, having, hearing this gifted man preach and think, wow, what a powerful thing it is. And I heard him tell this story this week. He's a, he's a professor at a Bible college in South Bend, Indiana. And he, and he, um, and this, I'm telling you this story so you get a little glimpse on the way out today for your Lord's Day of what does it look like to receive Jesus over and over again and how beautiful that story becomes and how beautiful the film of your life is to watch when you live that way. Bob says he's a teacher and he's got this girl and she's a student and she's a struggling student and he, and he, she listens to him for an hour every lecture, but she, he notices she's especially conscientious, and he notices that she shows up early for class. And so one day he thinks to himself, you know, she listens to me speak for an hour every time. I should spend time, instead of just messing with my class notes and getting ready, I should just go sit on the desk, and I should find out about her life, and I should ask her about her life. And so he, he begins to do this. It's a regular habit. He, he just sits, she's the first one there, and she's alone, and he goes over and he sits down, and he talks to her, and he discovers that she's a mother. He discovers that she had two children, but one of them died at, at birth, and the other one lived. And he discovers that the man, as the father of the babies, when he found out she was going to have a baby, immediately abandoned her and never came back. She's a single mother who had a season of time in her life when she had violated God's law and uh, his ways. And so she's a single mom, this little boy, and he's seven years old. So, you know, Bob says, you know what, with a woman like that, you know what you could do is you could kind of keep your distance, just kind of throw a Bible over the back fence so that she could maybe read it and get right. And with a woman like that, you could, you could, wad up a track in her door and ring her doorbell and run away so you don't get, you know, around her much, with her being immoral and all. You could take a woman like that, just pelt her with gospel rocks until she repents and becomes a wonderful church lady. But he said, you know, receiving Christ that day to him was just sitting on the edge of the desk and saying, tell me about your life. And she said, yeah, my, my little boy had a seventh birthday this week. It was pretty good. He goes, tell me about it. He goes, well, what did, you, what did you do? She said, well, we didn't have anything much. You know, I, didn't, I wasn't able to buy him a gift, but he was understanding about that. And I couldn't have a big cake because we just didn't have any money. You know, it's just hard for me just to pay the rent. So we're just glad to have a warm place to live and be able to pay the rent. But I made him a cupcake, and I, I put frosting on it and a candle in it, and I lit it. And I sang happy birthday to him. And he said, Mommy, he said, Mommy, this has been my best birthday of my whole life. This has been the best birthday of my whole life. And Dr. Bob said, went home to his wife and he received Christ again. And his wife received Christ again. And they went shopping. 
got one of these um, guns that shoots miniature marshmallows so that he could torment his dog. And they got him a candy bar, and they just decided they would splurge, and they get him a Bible story book too. And they took it over to this house, and they gave it to him, and everybody cried. And the girl came back to class. She said, Dr. Bob, my little boy's on page 80 of the Bible. And when you heard that story, did, did it happen in you like it happened in me? And then I said, oh, Jesus, if this is what it's going to be like, I receive you again and again and again and again and again. I never want to make my heart stubborn or hard or cold or be so foolish as to do my own thing. I just, when you say, come, I want to come. When you say, go, I want to go. When you say, stop, I want to stop. Jesus, I receive you again and again and again. Would you pray with me? Pastor's going to come and lead us in a song in a moment, but before he does, I wonder if anybody would like to just kind of openly, by lifting up your hand, say, and God knows what you mean when you do it, Jesus, I receive you today. Anybody want to say, Jesus, I receive you today. I receive you today. I receive you today. What a beautiful thing it is to look at you and know your heart is desired to receive Jesus over and over again. And to serve him. Bless you as you do that. God bless you as you do that. It's turn number 63.